You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com about all that you've done. 
Well, thank you for inviting me onto your show. Oh, I, thank you for saying yes. <laughs> very exciting. More importantly, so Kathy, let's start for those. Um, and again, I think what's so incredible from your books and from the TV series, we learned what forensic anthropology is. But could you just sort of give us an overview of of really what that is and what that has entailed, and even the schooling that involved to get to where you are today? Oh, that's about a three-part question. Um, <laughs> forensic anthropologists are biological anthropologists uh, with a specialty in the human skeleton, but we also have other additional qualifications. Um, we are the only branch of anthropology in which you have to have a board certification because we work for coroners, medical examiners, law enforcement, the military, um, and we help answer questions about identification of body and manner and cause of death and how long someone's dead. Um, sometimes we look at what happened to the body after death, and we work on cases in which a normal autopsy can't be done. Because the bodies are, if you've ever seen an opening scene for bones, <laughs> it's like a thousand ways to, to uh, compromise human remains. The bodies are uh, mutilated or dismembered or mummified or decomposed or burned or maybe they're just skeletal. So we take what we can from the skeleton and we address those questions to try to get the person identified and figure out what happened to them. So if there was an autopsy, but so I, the identity is known of the person, but if there's a question, even if it's a recent death, if there was a question about um, it's sort of the, the, the investigation led to not an unclear reason as to why the person was, you know, if there was a murder or if there was a kill, do you do anything with that or it's only situations where it's sort of the identifying of the... No, no, no. There are cases I've worked on where we know who it is, but the question is, well, what happened to them? Okay. Um, and it might be what happened to them. Um, the first book I wrote, Deja Dead, was based on a serial murder case, and uh, I worked on the, the killer's first victim. So we knew who we thought it was, and she was ID'd with dental records. But the key question in that case is, um, how had he dismembered her? What could I look at the bones? And studying the cut marks, could I determine what kind of tool was used or anything characteristic in the pattern in which the dismemberment was done. So that's just an example of a case where um, I really wasn't interested in or asked about who it is, and I wasn't asked about cause of death. I was asked about what happened in treatment of the body. So it can vary. Um, not every case is a criminal case, but right. you know, in criminal cases, it, it may have nothing to do with identity. It had, may have to do with other questions. And and just out of curiosity, the extent of education needed when you were saying you had to be certified on top of everything else, like how many years does it take if this is if this is um, something you're interested in pursuing? <laughs> well, like any graduate program, it depends on your motivation and right. how long the research takes and writing up your dissertation. But you have to have an undergraduate degree and then a master's degree and then a doctorate. So however long. I think the average time for a doctorate is about five years something like that. And then post-doctorate, you have to have a doctorate, a PhD, to sit for your board certification exam. And you have to have, I believe currently the requirement is three years practicing under the guardianship of a board-certified person. 
So I don't know. Do the math. How, how many? How many? Yeah. Years? We're talking about more than a lot. Years. Yeah, yeah. So when we passed Emily Deschanel for the role, um, Emily was 29, and I said to our executive producer, "You know, that is as young as you can. <laughs> you can get it all done in that amount of time, but it's, yeah, you better be very organized and disciplined." And when you go into a practice like this, is it something? Are you generally working with others, or is this a practice you could open up for yourself? Um, I Most of us work at, at uh, universities or, or mm-hmm. I don't know, museums, wherever, and then consult on the side to a medical examiner office or an, a coroner or a group of coroners, you know, a regional arrangement. Um, a lot of us do that. Not everybody. There is a facility in Hawaii where our war dead are being identified. I wrote about wow. this in, in um, one of my books, and uh, Spider Bones. And um, that facility employs something like 40 board-certified anthropologists. So there you're working with a lot of others, um, but that's, that's not typical. Typically, you're the forensic anthropologist go-to mm-hmm. person that a particular facility will use. When did you first know this was what you wanted to pursue? Oh, I really didn't. Um, I trained in bioarchaeology. I was planning to spend my academic career um, looking at ancient skeletons that were derived from archaeological contexts. But back in the day, and I won't tell you how far back that was, board certification wasn't uh, recognized as much as it is now. Um, So when there were bones discovered, the police didn't really know who's a legitimate expert. So just take them out to the bones lady out of the university. (laughs) So they started bringing me cases. And that's how I, you know, that's how I got kind of dragged into doing the forensic end of it. But then um, I really liked the relevance of it. I really Mm -hmm. found that compelling that you could, and you can't be wrong, when you tell a family you've identified their missing member or when you testify in court, you have to be right. So I really liked that, and then I retrained and, and took my boards and, and moved over into forensics. When did you then decide to start writing? Like how, did you, how did you make that? Really not a transfer because you continued in both fields at the same time, but when did you decide to start you know, sharing stories? Yeah, when did I decide to write fiction? <laughs> <laughs> Outside of my resume, right? <laughs> um, I made full professor at the university, which is the highest rank you can attain. So I was pretty much free to do whatever I wanted after that. Um, and um, I had just finished working on this serial murder case. Uh, so I had the freedom to try something new, and I had a story idea. Um, so I th- thought it would be fun to write fiction. I also thought it would be a way to bring my science to a broader audience. As you pointed out earlier, very few people had heard of forensic anthropology, mm-hmm. um, even as recently as the 90s, I would say. So um, I thought maybe by writing fiction, um, I could correct that situation. <laughs> so I think right. maybe, yeah, I think maybe people now know what, what my field is. I think there's not one person in the world that does not know your field because of you. No, because of, because of what you've shared. It's incredible. Well, and the books so are in uh, 36 languages, I think, and the show was 
in something like 100 foreign territories. So, yeah, breast wow. anthropology has, has gone global. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating and so intriguing what you do. And so um, I think it gives a lot of hope to people as well. That, that you know, that... Yeah, unless you're planning to, to, to murder Granny. <laughs> You've learned you have to be very careful that there's a lot of information that will be found in both. <laughs> when you started this, um, and when you're saying that so much information is found in bones, um, and I don't, I don't know if this is even an answerable question, but was there one thing that really struck you that you almost couldn't believe that it was like solving a puzzle or something you didn't realize you could find through your work on the bones? Well, each case is different. So uh, one of the things I love about going into the lab um, is that you never know what you're going to find in the lab waiting for you on any given day. I don't know that there was ever that, wow, I never thought bones could do this kind of mm -hmm. moment. But uh, the more cases you look at, the more you realize the kind of information that you can uh, derive from a skeleton. And in the case of a serial killer, is it almost like finding a similar motive, like when you're looking through the similar injuries or similar breaks or, or something, is that something that you would look at when you're looking at to see if there is a, a, a common denominator between different cases? Yes, you might look for patterning. Um, I don't really go into motive. I leave motive to the psychologists or the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the investigating uh, detective. But, um, yeah, certainly if you could see a pattern um, of how a perpetrator I don't know, slashed throats or how yeah. they dismembered bodies after they had committed the murder. Yes, that could certainly, not necessarily tell you who did it, but it could certainly link cases together based on a common pattern. And when you decided to start writing, did you reference some of your cases? I mean, you know, I, I know they're fiction, but would you go back to certain basic, uh, not storylines, but, you know, basic things that happened in cases you would experience? Yeah, I would um, usually take some central idea, as I said, for Deja Dead, the mm -hmm. first book. It was this idea of a, new, a unique pattern of dismemberment. Um, and I would testify to that, and the, the, the case was completely resolved, and uh, um, it was public record because you know, it had been in court testimony. So I always change all of the names and the places and the dates and all of the details, but I right. take one core idea, and um, I then ask myself, okay, well, what if? You've got this unusual pattern of dismemberment. Well, what if this happened? What if that happened? What if that happened? And then spin it off into fiction. And in most of the books, I use a case, something that I've worked on, or at least an experience. Um, Grave Secrets it draws on, I went to Guatemala around the year 2000 to help exhume a mass grave doing uh, human rights recovery work. So that book takes place, our heroine is down in Guatemala exhuming a mass grave from the, you know, the civil war that took place down there. That's also how the very, our pilot episode uh, of Bones began, is Tempe is returning from having been working in Guatemala. 
Fatal Voyage is based on work I did with the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Teams. These are teams that exist permanently, but they're activated in cases of mass fatalities, such as a plane crash. So that's what happens to Tempe at the opening of Fatal Voyage. Uh, Spider Bones is based on consulting work I did to the Central ID Lab for the military. Uh, Yeah, so I always draw on some experience I've had, or sometimes I draw on a case that I've heard about from a colleague, perhaps a presentation at our annual professional meeting, something like that, perhaps an article I've read in one of our professional journals. And by the way, you you casually mentioned your first book, Deja Dead. Your very first book won the Ellis Award, right? (laughs) Clearly that was the right decision to make. (laughs) You're very humble about that. Well, it did. Yeah, mine was not a typical story. Um, yeah, I, I set in my mind, because I didn't know if I could write. I have no formal training in writing fiction. So I told myself I'm going to write this book, um, and if I get 50 rejects from publishers, then I will take that as a commentated co- comment <laughs> on my writing skills and go back to my day job. Well, as it turned out, the very first publisher to whom I sent it bought it. Really? Uh, Yeah, so I didn't get any, you know, you hear authors papering their walls with rejects. I didn't get any, so, yeah. So that, yeah, the way I went about getting published, I don't recommend, um, even though, (laughs) yeah, I lucked out. But At that time, did you ever think that you would just, this was going to be a career for you, that you were going to start just creating so many new bestsellers from that? No, I really didn't. You know, when you write your first novel, um, you just hope maybe it'll be decent, maybe somebody will publish it, and then maybe someone will read it, buy it, and read it, and like it. Um, Every now and then it passes through your mind, well, maybe it'll be a series, or maybe it'll be a movie, and then you tell yourself, come on, get real, just (laughs) write the book, and, you know, maybe somebody will publish it. How, and by the way, speaking of series, so so now you have this huge collection of books, a ton of books, including all the Bone series. How did you make the progression from the series, the books, to the TV series? Um, I had several offers to option my character, uh, and none of those was really the right one. I just didn't, it just didn't feel right. And then I met with Barry Josephson and Hart Hansen, who came to be the executive producers. And, um, it, we just were on the same page about a lot of different things. The way we wanted the character, the way we wanted the show to flow, the fact that we wanted to put humor in the show, mm-hmm. which I do with the books, and that's that's a tough, that's a real tightrope that you walk. It's a, it's a balancing act because you want to have a little humor, but you don't want to be offensive. And we're dealing every week with, Violent yeah. death, every book with violent death. So how do you do that, have humor and not be offensive? So we were on the same page about all of that, and so um, that's why I decided to go ahead and option the character to them, and um, that became Bones. And going back to the humor part, is that something that was important to you because in your own life, and not again, it's a very serious thing that you're doing, but is that something you try and keep? as a part of what you're doing as well, to sort of get through some of the harder things you have to get through? I think you have to keep a sense of humor, yeah. Yeah. 
And when I created the character, I based her partly on myself, at least professionally. And, um, you know, I, I, I have a sense of humor, I think, and I gave her one. So my friends, when they read the books, they tell me that they can hear, even though she's saying it in the dialogue in the book, they can just hear me saying exactly the same kind of, you know, wisecracks and things. Fascinating. And all these, and, um, and we're going to get to your, your latest book soon again. For those joining us, we're thrilled and excited to talk to Kathy about everything that she's done that led to the Bones series, to the television show, and now, most recently, a conspiracy of Bones. But I'm just so enthralled by everything that you've done leading up to this as well. Um, and during your time working, you also worked with the FBI and you've um, done so many exciting things, and you just mentioned working with uh, identifying war heroes or, you know, through, through the military. Um, but you were also involved with um, identifications made after 9-11. Is that true as well? Yes, I was deployed uh, through the, I mentioned the um, mortuary operational response team. Um, I was deployed via that system to New York following um, the Twin Tower disaster. So I spent a bit of time at Ground Zero, and then I spent most of my time out at Staten Island at the landfill where everything was being transported. And we would just spend 13-hour shifts, and we would spend our whole time just um, going through debris and trying to sort out. No identifications were very few were being done because everything was so fragmentary that we were just trying to sort out um, human remains, uh, bone, you know, there, there was quite a bit of bone, but there were also restaurants and catering services and things in the Twin Towers. So we had to determine what was human bone. And then each day the medical examiner's van would come and we would bag it and tag it and they would, you know, assign numbers to it and pick it up and take it. Most of the, the IDs following um, 9-11 were done with DNA. Is that... With the, so you would take the bones, not, not not necessarily putting, not trying to put them back together, but sort of just identifying human bone versus... Yeah, just establish this. these are human remains. This is human, yeah. That was our main task. And then the DNA is taken from the bones. Is that How long is that, uh, how long a process is that normally? Those, those, those DNA identifications went on for years. And every now and then you'll still hear about one where they've, I don't know, turned over a rock or whatever and found something, and there's another ID that's made. So that took a long time because of the quantity, not because the process takes that long mm-hmm. anymore. Longer back then, but it's, it's more streamlined now. But just there were so many that, you know, you have to wait in line um, and do them one by one. And you, you have to do them accurately, and you have to do an official protocol and write up a, an official report on each one. So... That's all time-consuming. Of all the things that you've done, and it's just incredible how many people you've helped over the years um, by helping to identify all of these these people and what's happened and gives, gives people answers and hope. Um, is there a case um, that really stuck with you or you really felt like this is why I'm doing what I'm doing? I think each one is satisfying, especially maybe some are quicker. You know, a skeleton is found in the woods. We so-and-so went missing five years ago. We think it could be that person. You know, so you help establish that, that the, you know, everything in the bones is consistent.
question with the missing person. And um, so those, those, that, it's nice when you get that result. But I think the ones that really stick with you are the ones that linger for a long time and you don't get them identified for a long time. And then there's a breakthrough. And for some reason, um, you finally do get that set of remains back to back where it belongs. And I guess I have the same question with your books. You have so many books and so many different storylines in the books. Was there one that really, and I'm sure they're all like your, like babies too, all children, every book that you write. <laughs> yeah, hard to get a favor. <laughs> right. I've always really liked My kids would kill me if I asked that question right now. <laughs> I've always liked Bones to Ashes. Um, I think it was number 10, number 11, somewhere in the middle. Um, and it was, uh, I did a, I helped a family who lost, the only Canadian, he was a lay priest, he died, the only Canadian that died in Guatemala during the, the Civil War down there. And he was buried without ever having an autopsy for a while in an anonymous grave. And the National Film Board made a film about him. They flew his sisters down to Guatemala and they became curious about what had happened to him. His name was Raoul Legere. So they um, asked me if I would help with an exhumation and a reanalysis of his remains. So I did. I did that uh, back in, in Canada. But I got to know the Acadian people. He was an Acadian. These are French-speaking people that um, actually were thrown out of Canada back in the 1700s, and most of them migrated to, to um, Louisiana and became Arcadians. That's where the term Cajun comes from, the Acadians. Anyway, they're a wonderful, boisterous, fun-loving, warm lobster-eating people, and I had more fun um, spending time with them and researching that book. So that book has always been one of my favorites. And I guess taking this one step further, how about in the television series, in Bones itself? Was there an episode that um, really sort of pulled a heartstring or you really, really brought something back when you were watching it? Um, well... We did 246 episodes, so there's a lot of them. Um, I did write some of them. I think my favorite that I wrote was called The Dude in the Dam. Um, and it's the one, I don't know if you remember, but it's the one where Hodgins was growing the bot fly on his neck. And I remember when the head of the studio called down and he said, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And we were so proud Would you be on set when they were filming? When you write, when you're the writer, um, we had a staff of, I don't know how many, five, six, seven full-time writers, um, and then there would be at least three episodes um, for freelancers, such as myself. So when you wrote the episode, you you were expected to be on set for the t- each uh, one took two weeks to film. So for that two-week period, you were expected to be on set. So I was always there when they were filming the episodes I'd written, and then I tried to be on set as much as possible, um, just in general. And did you ever have sort of creative, um, you know, the final say, I guess, if something, maybe they weren't filming it correctly or you felt that it wasn't representing an accurate way something would have been done? No, I never had final say, but I had input, and that was also mm-hmm. one of the reasons I agreed to go with um, Hart Hansen and Barry Josephson, is they genuinely seemed to want my input, particularly with regard to the science, the bones, mm-hmm. 
And in the early years, um, that was my main role. I'm a pro- I was a producer on the show, but mainly I worked with the writers and um, helped them with with questions about you know about bones. Um, by the twelfth se- <laughs> by the twelfth season, they they knew more about bones than I did. I sat for their master's thesis and uh, <laughs> passed the exam. And so, the series ended, I think, in 2017. Am I correct about then? That sounds right, yeah. Okay. So when did you start writing A Conspiracy of Bones, your most recent novel? Oh, um, I guess I start. I did have a gap. I had a book come out every single year, a Temperance Brennan book come out every single year until um, two years ago. And then I took a gap. I did an off-series book, and then I took a gap year, which I'd never done, and just spent time... Um, with my grandkids and um, at my beach house. And so I must, and then I started Conspiracy of Bones during that time period. So that has to be like two years ago. Normally I would write a book a year. Really? Um, Yeah. Well, there was a period I was writing a young adult book with my son, a Temperance Brennan book, and a screenplay for the show every year. So that that was really demanding. <laughs> so you were really relaxed that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we did that. Brendan and I did it. He's an attorney. Both my kids are attorneys. Both have quit practicing law to become writers. So they wow. were identify with your opening comments. Mm. He and I, he hated being a lawyer, so he came to me with the proposal, why don't we write a young adult series? And so I said, yeah, let's do that. So we wrote the viral series, which features Temperance Brennan's 14-year-old great-niece, Tori Brennan, and her three best friends, who are boys. So we did six of those. Was that the first time he'd written? That is the first time he had written fiction, yes. Wow. But being a lawyer, you learn to write. You learn. He's the most organized writer I've ever... He just did a podcast through the library in Charlotte last night, I think it was and explained his process. He has this big board, and he has cards, and he has color coding, and he outlines everything in his book, which is a very different approach from mine. So he's very organized. Just the out, the word outline brings me not to hurt your walls. I start to sweat. Well, that, maybe that's where he got it. So. I think so. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And your other child is a writer now as well? Yeah, she wrote uh, three uh, contemporary women's literature, um, chick lit, but with a more serious social theme in each of her books. And she um, then had two kids, so she's taken a step back from that and is now working for a company called CEO, a CEO organization or something, writing, doing mainly writing for them. Wow. So writing was in your blood. So this was supposed to... <laughs> well, none of us knew that. <laughs> right. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so then, so you took a little break, and then you started to write A Conspiracy of Bones. Mm-hmm. And what made you, or did you always know you were going to start again? Was this an idea you had? Or after the break, did it come to you? Yes, no, it's an idea I had, and I was also under contract for another book, so... <laughs> so it um, happen. Yeah, and I'm always, there's a little piece at the back of the Conspiracy of Bones that explains, um, and I think I've done this with all my Temperance Brennan books, explains where the 
story came from, where the idea came from. And I talk about how I'm like an ant, and I've always got my feelers out. I'm always um, sniffing out new ideas and new developments. And for this book, and I try to see what's going to be of interest down the road, because it takes at least a year to write a book, and then most of another year it's in production. So one of the themes of this book is um, how does the... We are inundated constantly by blogs and um, podcasts and uh, radio shows, TV shows, all kinds of information and misinformation and disinformation from not just, you know, right-wing conspiracy nuts, but also people in authority. So how does the average listener or reader or viewer sort through that? How do you determine what's real and what's not real? What's fake news? What's alternative facts? So that's the theme um, underlying the story in A Conspiracy of Bones. So interesting, especially, I mean, every day, right? That's what people are struggling from, especially now, everybody being, how, how, how pertinent it is. You clearly were prophetic in coming up with this, because especially now, when everybody's home and you're inundated, minute by minute with a different piece of advice or news, whatever it is, and many times conflicting. And many times just complete disinformation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So it's, it's so, so hear that, everybody out there? This is what we should be reading right now. <laughs> it's quite timely. It's quite timely. And it's funny, now that you've finished it, do you feel what is happening right now is a little bit representative in the book? Well, I think this in the sense that, you know, people get on air and say things that simply are not true, and they're not only um, confusing, they're dangerous sometimes. So, yeah, that theme, I think, is very timely. The case I drew on for this book, um, I worked on a murder case. A journalist was murdered, and her body was dumped in the woods, and it was scavenged by bears. So it was in pretty bad shape. So that was the case I worked on. So in this one, um, the story opens with Tempe receiving an anonymous text with pictures of this faceless corpse. The corpse has no face, no teeth, no hands, so it can't be identified by dental records or fingerprints, so it's it's a typical anthropology case. Um, She doesn't know who sent her the text, and um, he's going through a bad period because there's a new boss at the medical examiner office in Charlotte, and she and this new boss have history, and the new boss will not use her for any anthropology work. So for various reasons that we learn about, Tempe is committed to getting this faceless corpse identified, and in this case, the the scavenging was by feral hogs, Um, not bears, but I got the idea from the bears. (laughs) Um, So in this case, she's having to work outside the system. She's having to rely on her own resources and her own network of colleagues. So that's very different from her for her. When when you do something like that, and you were saying that there are no identifiable things, and it's all relying on the bones, this may be a dumb question, but are there certain bones you're more excited to find? Like, are there certain bones that are more helpful than others? That may be a dumb question, like I said, but they're more helpful than others? Oh, no, that's absolutely true, Um, because the main, what I do, I don't do very many positive IDs. Those are done by dental records or DNA. But where I'll come into the picture is if we have a completely unknown set of remains. We don't have a clue who this is. So you cannot use DNA in a vacuum 
You can't use dental records. You have to know whose dentist to go to. You have to know mm-hmm. whose family to go to for a comparative DNA sample. So what I'll do is I'll give the investigating officer the biological profile, the age, the sex, the racial background, the height, all of those things. And then he or she can then match that profile to a missing persons list. And then if you have a possible match, then you've got a name. Oh, we think it's Joe Blow. And then you can go get Joe Blow's dental records. So to do that profile, I'm getting to your question. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm fascinated by this. (laughs) To do that profile, the most useful areas are the skull and the pelvis for determining um, gender, definitely. The pelvis is the most useful. And for determining racial background as well, the skull is the most useful. So those areas are are definitely, uh, Mm -hmm. you can say a lot more with more certainty than if you just have a few, you know, toe bones or a long bone. And then I guess another thing that would be helpful is in identifying something that's been a broken bone or, or a misshapen bone or something, a genetic issue that could be somewhat identifiable. The, absolutely, and that's one of the things that I will look for when I'm doing that uh, profile is anything that can tell me about past medical history. Um, you know, this person broke their arm when they were a kid, that it held, healed well, or, you know, they broke their right upper incisor, or they have this slightly odd, slight oddity that's normal, but like a genital variation. So all of those will be useful later in establishing an identity. Is there a case that really puzzled you? Like, when you think back again, I'm sure there were many that, that really puzzled you, that you really had to come up with something off the beaten track or, you know, out of the box to, to figure out? Um, well, there have been some. For a while, I was doing a lot of dismemberment cases. And, um, yeah, you have to come up with techniques for analyzing the cut marks in the bone. Sometimes those are going to leave a lot of information, especially if the saw, if it's a serrated knife or a saw with teeth. Um mm-hmm. And, and to come up with different ways, sometimes I would simply do it with microscopy and look at magnified uh, views of the cut marks. Sometimes um, I would actually cast them, you know, with like dental stone or something and then do the analysis on the three-dimensional cast. So you're always, you're always trying to think of something new that, you know, that, that might work. Since you began this, um, have any big changes happened in... In I don't know the way bones are looked upon, or any new technologies that have come out that have made this a little bit easier, or is it really technology is not the kind of thing that's going to help? It's just going back to the basics and going back to the bones. Whenever journalists come to my lab, they're usually which they can't do anymore because of DNA restrictions. Um, but they were usually very disappointed at how low tech an anthropology lab is. We use microscopes, we use x-rays, we use um, uh, bone saws, we use calipers for measuring um, computers, obviously, to run um, measurements through databases, that sort of thing. But we don't use mass spectrometers and gas chromatography and that kind of thing. Um, The big development in forensic science in general, of course, over the last... uh, couple of decades, I guess, is, is DNA. And, yeah, 
So we do treat bone a little differently now, and we always retain samples um, for DNA analysis should, in the future, should we need it, should we need a profile to compare to another profile. The other, the other development in DNA right now is that it used to always be, and there's a lecture, Tempe's giving Skinny Slidell a lecture about this in A Conspiracy of Bones, used to be DNA was only for comparatives. You know, you could only compare this profile to this profile to see if you had a, a probability match, whereas now it's predictive. And you can actually use DNA to predict hair color, eye color, skin color, to predict what major geographic area someone might have come from. So that's a whole new area that's um, developing. And then, of course, this, this very recent thing of um, genealogy DNA of using genealogy databases to maybe find a match to a relative of, of your perpetrator or your unidentified remains. Would you ever, so if there were a case where you recover the DNA and then have the DNA identified, would you ever revisit, or could that ever be helpful in revisiting a body that you were trying to figure in it with that information? Oh, absolutely. Um, one case that comes to mind uh, is a little set of child's remains that came to me, I think, in 1998. And um, they've never been identified. They've always been in my lab. And 10 years after that, the recovery of those remains, um, we were able to sequence some mitochondrial DNA from them. Um, we never got a match from that, but we still ha now have that on record, and there's still hope in the future that we might, we might be able to get a match. Wow. And, then, and I know you worked with um, identifying uh, recoveries from World War II as well. Yeah, the main point of, it used to be called JPAC, the Joint POWMIA Accounting Command. I think it's mm -hmm. going by, by a different set of, it's military, so they love acronyms. Um, they are, we give a commitment to all of our um, troops that if we send you overseas, we will, we will bring you home. We will find you and bring you home. So we um, have uh, permanent agencies devoted to doing that. Primarily remains from um, Southeast Asia, but also from Korea and World War II. So that's the, the main lab that's out in Hawaii um, that I consulted to and that I wrote about in Spider Bones, which is like my 12th book or something like that. So I, I was not a full-time employee, but any time a positive ID is made um, by that lab, it has to be reviewed by an external consultant. So I did that for several years. Oh, I see. And now looking forward, are you thinking, hopefully, <laughs> of writing more books? Or what are you thinking for the future now? I am working busily on um, number 20. Um, wow. Yeah, hopefully a year from now. Um, what can I tell you about it? I will just tell you. We don't have a title yet. We're hoping to come up with a title within the week, actually. I will just tell you that I'm doing a lot of reading and research about human genome editing. Wow. And... Let me ask you, so in this horrible time that we're in right now, with this just unprecedented, <laughs> I don't even know what is happening or what day it is, um, 
is this something when you think, like, is this something that could potentially be something in the future to find out? About the virus, well, interestingly, the <laughs> the book I'm working on, a virus plays a role in that story, and I started this book six months ago. Again, you're incredibly <laughs> prophetic now. You realize <laughs> what is happening. <laughs> yeah, really, what's happening? <laughs> Fatal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 again, sadly, in all of this, and you hear about all of the unfathomable amounts of deaths that are going on right now. And there are many, I'm sure, at some point that may be or have not been identified. Is this something that those in your profession could help with as this, you know, we go into the future and try and figure this out? Yeah, there was a case not that many years ago. I'm going to say maybe eight years ago. I'm probably way off of a man who ran a crematorium in Georgia. And instead of cremating the remains, he just stacked them up in the back of his property. Some 350 bodies were back there when they found it. So needless to say, they were not in good shape. So I did not work on that, but um, colleagues of mine did through the disaster mortuary operational response teams. So, yes, certainly there could be people who die and aren't discovered for a while, and that's exactly the kind of case that it would go to the local medical examiner or coroner, and then the, the anthropologist would be brought in to work on, you know, the skeletal or putrefied or whatever, mummified, whatever the remains were. I can't believe we only have two minutes left. I could talk to you all night. I'm so mad at what you do. But it really is such a gift to, all, to everybody out there that you provide these answers. Again, I mentioned before, you provide hope, you know, you can't give up hope because there is always a chance, and that's what you've given everyone for all of these years. And just explaining it through your books and through the series and through your most recent book, The Conspiracy of Bones, you've taught us about this entirely new world of where there's always a possibility, always. So grateful to you for that and for everything that you've taught us. Well, thank you. I do think families don't always like the answers that we give them, but they would rather know than not know if there's someone missing. I think so, too. I think it's the answer. And just to give you some some peace of mind, and that's what you provide. So, Kathy, what is the best way for everybody to get immediately a conspiracy of bones and everything else that you've done and anything else you want to share? Well, everything is available online, either through Barnes & Noble or through Amazon. Also, I really like to support independent bookstores, and many independent bookstores uh, do a very thriving online business where uh, many of them have signed copies of the books, The Poison Pen in Arizona, Murder by the Books in uh, Houston, Texas, are a couple of the independents that come to mind, so they can get the books that way. Also, if they just want to go to my website, which is kathyreichs.com, K-A-T-H-Y-R-E-I-C-H-S.com, um, there are links there that will help them to to find the books. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the social platforms. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. I can't thank you enough for sharing your wealth of experience and everything that you've done and the books that you share and your TV series and this most recent book, again, The Conspiracy of Bones, um, but just being so generous with everything that you've told us tonight. Um, 
Uh, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't wait for everyone to go get this book because we certainly have the time to read it right now. <laughs> and uh, and then we'll be ready for the next one, which is on its own. Right. Well, thank um, you so much. And everybody out there, again, thank you for listening. We're gonna, we'll be coming live every Thursday night. This will be a podcast on iTunes. Um, if you go to Morph Mom Moments, you can hear this again. If you go to morphmom.com, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, you can find them there as well, a repeat of the radio show and the podcast. Um, reach out to us and let us know what you want to hear, to learn, to know. Um, but again, our hearts go out to those who are suffering, for those who have lost anyone, and we're praying that all are well and healthy and safe. And just be good to each other, because that's about all we can be right now. Thank you again, everyone, tonight. Thank you again, Kathy. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Good night.